You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. We're going to start just with some really general kind of background information about dermoscopy. Um, where did it come from? Why are we doing it? Everybody's in this room because we either are doing it or want to be doing it and want to be doing it better. So dermoscopy goes by, has gone by a number of different names uh, over the years. So you might read about epiluminescence microscopy, epiillumination microscopy, skin surface microscopy, all these different words all mean the same thing. So if you read these, we're still talking about dermoscopy or dermatoscopy. Uh, basically, it's a non-invasive way of looking into the skin to evaluate skin lesions better. So it gives us almost microscopic x-ray vision. Oops, back. We've come a long way. Uh, early dermatoscopes first kind of came on the scene uh, in the early part of the 1900s, and they weren't particularly portable. Uh, they were a little bit cumbersome. So we've really advanced beyond this. And now we basically have three different types of dermatoscopes. So we have what are called non-polarized dermatoscopes. These are usually uh, maybe hanging on the wall with your otoscope in the office or um, you know, something that you keep in a charger in your office, not a pocket-sized device. And these are the ones that require a liquid interface and you set them directly against the skin with a liquid interface between the skin and the scope. The one here on the far right is called a polarized dermatoscope. That's probably the one that most of us are familiar with, most of us use every day because it fits in your pocket. Um, and then there are also some nice ones that combine both, both features of polarized and non-polarized dermoscopy. And you can buy any brand you want. I have no stock in any dermatoscope company, so these there's no conflict. So Dr. Kirby was kind of getting to this, and I really like this quote. You can call me Jocelyn. All right, Jocelyn. <laughs> Jocelyn was getting to this. So this quote was from a paper uh, published in 2010, and it says, one is easily disoriented amidst a puzzling amount of terminology, signs, and algorithms. At times, one cannot help but conclude that the subtleties and nuances of dermatoscopy can only be mastered by those who dedicate an inordinate amount of time and effort to the science. Which is why we've expanded this course to 12 hours, so settle in. <laughs> So sit back and get comfortable because we need to spend an inordinate, we don't need to spend an inordinate amount of time to start to be comfortable with this. You do not have to dedicate your career to doing nothing but dermatoscopy, dermoscopy, to get good at it. Um, but I think when you first start, you feel like the people pictured here, I did. Um, this was not something that I was received any formal training in during my residency because it was fairly new at that time. And so I was learning it on the fly as well. And at first, kind of reading all of these globules and blotches and pseudopods and dots and spots, and sp it's, it's kind of disheartening at first. But we're going to try and lump things together because it doesn't have to be that complicated uh, to be able to increase your ability to diagnose lesions that need to be biopsied. So we've got our first little polling question. So grab your 
ARS devices. Does anyone not have a keypad? They're at the ends of the desks. So our first question here, I want you to tell me which of these statements is true. Dermoscopy does not improve the sensitivity for detecting melanoma in a pigmented lesion clinic. Dermoscopy improves diagnostic accuracy among untrained dermatologists. Dermoscopy decreases the number of benign lesions biopsied in experienced hands. Dermoscopy increases the sensitivity for detecting melanoma, but also increases the number of biopsies performed overall. So we'll give you a little time to finish getting your answers in here. I do not have the moves like Jagger, so I will not <laughs> dance up here. Um, so excellent. The, the majority of you did get this one correct. So dermoscopy actually decreases the number of benign lesions that we biopsy. Um, it, it does not, if, once we get a little experience with it, it actually does not increase the number of overall biopsies although it does increase our sensitivity for detecting melanoma. So the first part of statement D that about a quarter of the room picked is correct. It's just that it doesn't, if once we're good at it, increase the overall number of biopsies. So let's talk a little bit about that. Dermoscopy improves diagnostic accuracy. That's basically when you're looking at the sensitivity or specificity of a, of a test, and you can think of dermoscopy as a, as a test, just like a, a biopsy. So dermoscopy improves our sensitivity. Without dermoscopy, dermatologists correctly diagnose between 65 and 80% of melanomas, just with the naked eye, which is a little bit scary. It means we're missing a lot just with our naked eye examination. Um, when you add dermoscopy to this, you can increase sensitivity by 10 to almost 30%. So we get a lot better by adding a few seconds to our time of looking at a pigmented lesion with the dermatoscope. Um, the, if you look at primary care physicians and you give them a dermatoscope and you don't do, give them any training, their accuracy of using that dermatoscope to diagnose a melanoma is not a whole lot better than chance alone. But if you do just a short amount of training, a half-day course, um, there is a significant improvement in melanoma diagno diagnosis when you add dermoscopy to naked eye exam in the primary care setting. We do know that without training, our accuracy is actually worse. So without training, we probably are biopsying more things than we otherwise would when we grab a dermatoscope. So you're all here getting more training, so we're gonna ultimately reduce the number of biopsies because we know what we're looking at. Dermoscopy, as we said, the correct answer, it reduces unneeded biopsies. Um, so that means it enhances specificity as well. So the proportion of benign pigmented lesions that we correctly identify and leave on our patients uh, is, is increased. 42% uh, uh, reduction in biopsies 
were seen in this study that was published in 2004 when they added dermoscopy to just naked eye exam alone. So that's a pretty significant reduction in biopsy number. Um, so before training, before using derm dermatoscopy in this same clinic, in this uh, study in New York, they were biopsying about 18 benign lesions for every one melanoma that they detected. And then after training, that went down to four benign lesions to one melanoma. So you're leaving behind a lot of those benign lesions you didn't have to remove. Um, and they followed the physicians who did the training and continued dermoscopy in their practice for about four years and found that they continued to have that same excellent four to one ratio of benign to malignant, but the people that never incorporated it, that were kind of a little scared, like the, the ladies in that photo, they didn't improve over that same four-year period. So even with you know more years, four more years of seeing pigmented lesions, they were still biopsying way more benign things than the people who were using their dermatoscopes. So if that isn't enough, why else should we be using dermoscopy? Well, it's quick. It's non-invasive. Patients don't want to have biopsies that they don't need, and it only adds a few seconds to your exam. I think it really helps to reassure patients. Patients feel much better that you're doing something more than just looking. How many times do patients come into your office and say, well, aren't you gonna put on some kind of helmet and look at me with a special light or, you know, well, your dermatoscope, I think, reassures patients that you are taking the extra time. You're taking a little pause in the moment, really focusing in on a lesion as well. So it, it, it kind of makes you stop and focus as well. So it helps reassure patients. Um, it helps sometimes in looking at a lesion, maybe that is too large to biopsy without a big excision um, and determining which part of that lesion might be the best place to take your biopsy specimen from. Um, and it, as we said, reduces unnecessary biopsies and improves our accuracy. So I think we're all here because we know we should be using dermatoscopy, dermoscopy. Important, it is an adjunctive tool to everything else we do in the room. So we have to consider the patient's history, our naked eye exam, the age of the patient, in addition to what we are seeing through that scope. So it doesn't replace all the rest of that in the room, which is why these apps where people take a little shot of something on their skin are not gonna replace us. We need all of this other background information in order to have the ability to really distinguish benign from malignant and know what's going to be biopsied. Um, so do not ever disregard clinical information or exam findings just because of what you're seeing in your dermatoscope. You want to take this all together, but whenever there's any doubt, better to biopsy. All right, so how does dermoscopy work? And I'm going to, there's a lot of information that you'll have in your handouts here that you can take a look at. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. I am not a physics major, and as soon as you start talking about polarization and refraction, I start to panic like the ladies in that picture. Um, but briefly, so polarized and non-polarized dermoscopy, a little bit different. Again, non-polarized is this one that you have to set right against the skin, and you have to have a liquid interface between that glass plate 
of the dermatoscope and the skin. Um, alcohol is the best choice, so just like a little alcohol wipe, it also cleans off the scope, so um, you know, I think it's a, a good choice for that. The, the one exception is if you're looking at nails, which we'll talk about a little bit later, you want something that's a little thicker, like a, like a hand sanitizing gel. So all things we have right at our fingertips in the office. Um, and that liquid it allows us to see through the stratum corneum. The way the light is transmitted through that liquid and glass plate of this device allows us to see through stratum corneum and into the superficial dermis. Polarized dermoscopy, you don't have to set this against the skin. It uses the cross polarization of light to see these deeper structures. And then we, as I said, have some devices where you can toggle between polarized and non-polarized. You just have to remember that when you are in the non-polarized setting on one of these dual devices, you still have to have it sitting against the skin with a liquid interface for it to be actually giving you that non-polarized dermoscopy image. Otherwise, it's basically just a magnifying glass at that point. Okay, so. Jenny, is that your eyeball? Um, that may actually be my eyeball. <laughs> I think I might have cut and pasted from a picture of myself. I love the dedication. Yes, yeah, anything for, anything for teaching. So here's our eye, here's our light source. In the office it's usually not the sun since we don't have open windows most of the time, but light source, and then our skin, stratum corneum, epidermis, dermis, right? So without a dermatoscope, Light, the light from a light source can come in to, I'm gonna just advance this. We can see light in this, we can see structures in the skin from, I'm getting my laser pointer and my advance backwards, okay. So light comes in, the majority of light that is reflected, refracted from the skin surface is refracted by the stratum corneum with the naked eye. So basically that's mainly what we're seeing just the surface of the skin, the stratum corneum. The light that we're seeing that's through deeper layers of the skin, we aren't appreciating very well, which is why we can't see through skin without the help of these devices. Let's see, there we go. Okay, so that's how a naked eye exam works. With the polarized scope, the one you don't have to put on the skin, light from the surface, the stratum corneum is really eliminated, that, that reflection. So we're not seeing, we're seeing through the stratum corneum um, and we're seeing down into the upper dermis and the lower parts of the epidermis. With the polarized scopes, we actually see the upper dermis a little bit better than with the non-polarized scopes. Uh, so there's the, the polarized scopes are somewhat blind to the very uh, bottom of the epidermis and the, and the upper dermis. The non-polarized scopes actually show us surface structures just beneath the stratum corneum a little bit better. These differences are very, very mild. I'm gonna show you a few examples of where this might matter, um, but whichever device you have, you're going to be able to see structures beneath the stratum corneum that otherwise you aren't able to without the assistance of the devices. When you're looking, you suddenly get to see all of these colors and structures that your naked eye is not appreciating. And so each of these different colors 
has different meaning histologically. So learning what different colors represent help you identify what you are looking at. When you see something that looks black in your dermatoscope, you're basically looking at melanin right up in the top in the stratum corneum. Brown is going to be melanin that's a little bit deeper in the epidermis, and gray is usually melanin in the papillary dermis or in melanophages. Blue is uh, melanin in the deepest layers of the dermis. I'm not sure. Jenny, your battery's running low. I'll, 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 try and, I'll try and get through it. Red is vascular, kind of makes sense. Yellow can be keratin. And then white can be a couple of things. It can be collagen, very deep in the dermis, or it can be keratin, like we see in those seborrheic keratoses where you see those white keratin pearls. We'll show you some examples of that. So learning what different colors mean um, helps you identify what you're looking at with your dermatoscope. Now, as I mentioned, either of these types of devices is going to increase your sensitivity, reduce your number of unnecessary biopsies. Very subtle differences. When you use the type that has to contact the skin, the non-polarized scope, um, you may see blue-white color, that blue-white veil, a little better than you can with the non-contact polarized dermatoscopes. And you can see those superficial structures like the milia-type cysts in seborrheic keratoses a little better. But the problem is you are pushing on the skin with this device so you can compress vessels. And so blood vessel changes, which you're gonna hear a lot about from Jocelyn a little bit, are um, a little bit less easy to identify because of the pressure we exert, even, even the minimal pressure on those really teeny capillaries. Polarized dermatoscopes, what most of us carry around in our pockets, um, are better for seeing, therefore, those vascular changes. And this is the device that allows us to see the deepest structures better. So those white collagen changes, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment uh, when we talk about pigmented lesions. So this is just an example of how compression can affect the ability to see blood vessels. So when you don't push on it very much or use, or use a non-contact polarized dermatoscope, you can see these nice little vessels that you lose as soon as you put the pressure of that contact non-polarized dermatoscope on the skin. Okay. And these are just a couple of additional examples of the differences. So you see with the one that you don't, the, the one that you set against the skin, the non-polarized dermatoscope, those milia cysts and the seborrheic keratosis, really obvious, more subtle when you're looking with your pocket polarized dermatoscope. Um, the blood vessels, just talked about that. A little easier to appreciate when you're looking at lesions with a polarized scope. And then the white structures, one of the white structures we see in melanoma is called chrysalis structures. We'll get to that. Easier to appreciate with the polarized dermatoscope because these are collagen changes deeper in the lesion. So, now we know all this. How do we get started? With a little help from Jocelyn, not Dr. Kirby. Thank you. Okay, all right. So I came to dermoscopy late after I had kids and 
my daughter was at a soccer game and I was sort of thinking about preparing this talk. She runs over, she's like, mom, look what I drew. So she's seven and, you know, as a parent, you're supposed to express much delight and, you know, say, well, this is beautiful. What is it? Um, so this is kind of the idea of dermoscopy is I got so used to looking at things clinically that it was very hard to look at what I felt was sort of a compressed, almost two-dimensional appearance of something that in the clinic is often three-dimensional. And as Jenny talked about, the dermatoscopes, and I use a polarized dermatoscope, um, so this is getting deeper versus, I always think of non-polarized, because you have to set it on the surface of the skin, you're looking at the surface of the skin. So kind of surface means you're looking at surface, polarized, and sometimes I play tricks with my brain. A P, I can turn into a D, so that means deeper. So however you guys like to think of it, but I used a polarized dermatoscope. So this was sort of a lesson to me of taking something that was three-dimensional and sort of getting used to reinterpreting it and trying to stretch it back into what is a three-dimensional thing. So can anybody guess what this is? You guys are really good, yeah. So this is a little girl that she was playing with had this stuffed fox named Yip Yip. So um, whenever you're kind of looking at something and you're trying to say like, what am I seeing? What colors? What does that mean? Think of Yip Yip and realize that you're seeing a two-dimensional picture of what's really something in three dimensions. It's the surface of the epidermis. It's structures within the epidermis. It is now structures in the dermis, the papillary dermis, and you have to reconstruct that. And Jenny talked about colors. And so what we're really making use of with dermoscopy is the fact that we get the nuance when we look very closely of where are there different colors in a lesion? What really are those colors? Because we're getting right on top of it with the dermatoscopes. And so this is a picture of a pool uh, over in Europe. And this is from an article on dermoscopy that makes the point of knowing what you're seeing and why it looks that way. So if we scooped up some of the sediment on the bottom of that pool in this, what, dang it, this light area, what color do you think this would be? What, what color? Yeah, it's kind of a light, how come it's not blue? It looks blue in the picture. Well, it's because of the water on top. So you've got different layers. You've actually got reflection on the very surface. So there aren't trees on the surface of this water, right? This is a trick of how light reacts, and that happens on the skin. So getting rid of that reflection with alcohol, with wetting it, is something that we do. Water has a blue color, and it's also reflecting some of the color of the sky. So while we see this sediment as blue, we know that it's really because of all the layers of things happening over top of it that it looks that way. We know that both of these things, this darker grass growing under the water and this sand, they have different colors. They both look blue in this picture, but we know that in reality they are not. They're just both affected by the overlying pigment. 
And so what we're gonna show you here are a lot of pictures of how different layers, and Jenny has that really nice figure in her uh, talk about how the stratum corneum is naturally yellow. So if you put yellow from the stratum corneum in something really thick, on top of something that maybe has some dark melanocytes down in the dermis and the epidermis, it's not gonna be just black. It's gonna be the brown or the black with a little bit of yellow on top. The fibrosis of something adds a white color. If you put white on top of something black, it adds sort of a gray. And so that's where this interpretation of color is really from a layering of different colors in the skin. So just keep that in mind as we go through. So this is just another picture. Um, this uh, image is from the textbook by Ashmar Goob, who's one of the biggest um, people in dermoscopy. Um, it has a ton of pictures. Because it has a ton of pictures, it also has a pretty big price tag. It's uh, three or $400. But if you really like, like to have an atlas uh, in your office or to just flip through a lot of pictures, I would recommend it. Very high quality. So, this is somebody who comes into the office and you know we can look at him and say gosh that really kind of stands out kind of just stands out as the ugly duckling and again maybe you can immediately look at it and say you know maybe it's nothing but you can now put your dermatoscope on it and have that sense of yeah there's something going on here so we're going to talk about how there's a lot of algorithms out there where you get points for a certain amount of asymmetry in different quadrants and points for different colors. But what we're so good at, what really any human being is good at, is seeing the ugly duckling. Um, so seeing the asymmetry in something, the difference in something compared to other lesions. And so it's just that kind of gestalt or gut reaction. But when you look at this, the things that you might worry about are why is there a blotch sort of off to the side and not including the whole lesion? Why is there some border irregularity to this lesion? Why is this structure this blue-gray color over here? And so hopefully now that we've talked about some of the colors, you might put together, well, there was this area of brown pigment. And brown means pigment mostly in the papillary dermis. But now there's this maybe layer of white on top of that. And that might mean fibrosis, which could be regression in a melanoma. And you might even see this gray color over here, which is probably deeper cells going down into the dermis and also invading into the epidermis. So remember those cells in melanoma as they creep upwards in the epidermis look blacker and blacker. So these are cells up higher than they should be along with fibrosis. So this gets to the point of even if you don't go through that thought process, you're going to say there's this blue-gray color. There's some asymmetry in the color. There's asymmetry in the shape. This is something I want to biopsy. And in the past requisition, you can write to yourself, these are the structures I saw. And that's a really nice way, as Jenny talked about, when we first start with dermoscopy, we are not efficient but I always write what I think I'm seeing on my past requisition form, so that way I get the information back when I also get the diagnosis, and I can match those things up and say, I need to fine tune how I'm interpreting what I'm seeing with my dermatoscope, because what I thought I saw actually wasn't a cancer. Let me try and work on that. So algorithms, this is the one we're gonna talk about today. Not really, no. But a lot of people like to make things complicated. 
and it's not that complicated. So as Jenny talked about, the use of these algorithms really means that we can correctly find, but also correctly identify something as not cancerous, and that's just as important. That's the specificity, so correctly exclude something as not cancerous. The ABCD rule, the uh, seven-point checklist, the three-point checklist, cache algorithm, these are all various algorithms that have proven to be reproducible from one person to another person. Um, and you know, a lot of people choose one that they like. Um, minus two steps, uh, I got this from one of my colleagues, uh, Vinnie Cyberling, who loves dermoscopy. And she said it best, which was, if it doesn't fit, it has to split. Meaning if it doesn't fit into a set of known patterns that are entities we know, if you cannot categorize it, then it needs to be biopsied, it has to split. So we're gonna use this as we go through uh, the cases that we show you. So first question with the two steps is, is this melanocytic? Is this a melanocytic lesion? Because the thing we're most worried about identifying is melanoma. So we're always gonna focus on melanocytic things first. So we're gonna be looking at, does it have a pigment network? Does it have globules? or does it have a homogeneous blue-gray color? So these are the three things that would categorize something as being in the melanocytic category. If it does look melanocytic, the next question you wanna ask yourself, and I'll pop this up in a second, is does it fit a known benign pattern? If it is not melanocytic, there's plenty of other benign things on the skin and plenty of well-known patterns. Does it fit into one of those? So is it a dermatofibroma? Does it fit the pattern of a cherry angioma, a separate keratosis? And we're gonna show you a lot of these patterns. So these are all things that we still wanna be able to kind of recognize, but they're not melanocytic. But again, melanoma is the big thing. Let's try and find things that are atypical or worrisome. So does it fit a benign nevus pattern? If it does, you've just diagnosed it as something melanocytic, but in a benign pattern, you can observe that, reassure the person, tell them what to look for. But if it doesn't fit into one of those benign patterns of a typical nevus pattern, well, you might wanna ask yourself, does it have uh, features of a melanoma? If it does, you're gonna biopsy it. If it doesn't, you've got a couple different options. One is biopsy it anyway. So you've said it doesn't fit a benign pattern and you think it's melanocytic. So maybe we should just biopsy it. But as I mentioned, Ashmar Goob is a, does a lot of dermoscopy and runs the cancer clinic up at Memorial Sloan Kettering. He will typically take a picture both clinically and through the dermatoscope. And at least we can attach those into our medical record and then have people come back at three months. And if there's any change, he biopsies it at that point. Um, and so there is that opportunity for short-term monitoring. If you're saying, you know what? I can't put it into a good nevus category, but I'm not seeing a ton that makes me convinced it's melanoma. And I talk to the patient, I'm like, listen, I can't tell you exactly what this is. I'm sort of on the border. Do you wanna watch it? Or does that just not sound like something you're comfortable with doing? There's plenty of people who choose both options. I would say more often people do choose to have it off because I'm expressing a little bit of uncertainty. Um, and I do tend to biopsy things on the back a little more frequently just because I can't rely on the patient to be able to see back there. Um, and so I have different thresholds for biopsying things. All right, so what are these pigment networks, globules, and homogenous? So this is a pigment network. 
I had to stare at pictures of pigment networks to kind of burn this into my brain. The way that I think of a pigment network is it's a lacy pattern. It's very fine. So, ooh, sorry. I'm having the same trouble that Jenny had. When I look at a pigment network, it almost looks like these white river stones surrounded by mud or grout, you know? It's sort of like big tiles with small little bits of stuff in between. These are hair follicles, so there's a little bit of a decrease in the amount of pigment in the pigment network around hair follicles, and that's why very often you might have seen patients with moles that look like Swiss cheese. So they sort of get these big areas where there's a little less color, and that's an absolutely normal pattern. So pigment network is fine and it's lacy. This is another picture of a normal pigment network. Again, the strands of the color around the lighter areas, this is finer. So this is a smaller diameter than this. When pigment network starts to get bigger and it's almost as wide, and we'll show you some pictures of this, that's an atypical network. It says something about an increase in either the amount of melanin or the number of cells making melanin, like melanocytes, that are taking up too much space on the skin. The pigment network in some benign nevi, and we'll show you some pictures of this, can be quite dark in the center but you can still see structures and sort of reticulated patterns. When you start to lose that and it's just sort of a blob, that's structureless, and that can be a little bit of a concerning sign. So this is pigment network. This means that something has an amount of melanin or melanocytes in it. So question number one for this algorithm was, is it melanocytic, does it have pigment network, globules, or homogenous? So these also indicate that something can be melanocytic. So this is what we call cobblestone globules. They're basically dots of pigment. This usually indicates a deeper lesion. So this is a dermal nevus with this brown globule fitting together like cobblestones. Homogenous blue-gray. So you, you might say, but you showed me a picture of something that had blue-gray in it before, and you said that was concerning. What's different for homogenous blue-gray is it takes up the entire lesion. So this is a blue nevus. It's absolutely normal, but the entire lesion is that blue-gray color. What was concerning about the prior picture was it was a subsection of the lesion, and that is asymmetry. That is concerning. So this is a basal cell skin cancer. Basal cell skin cancers can have pigment. Now, the difference here in the pigment and the globules or dots seen in a basal cell is they're a bit messier. They're sort of not as well organized. So this is an example of a pigment structure in a basal cell that we call a spoke wheel. So it looks like almost to me watercolor paint that's dripped onto a piece of paper and then it sort of oozes and spreads outwards. And so this is very typical for basal cells is they have a very oozy sort of globule rather than this very sharply defined globule. The globules are different sizes. So this would be concerning. So even if you said, you know what? I see globules, I think this is melanocytic. 
So again, not recognizing that these might be signs of basal cell, you're still going to be okay because you're going to say, well, it looks like globules, but you know, it looks a bit asymmetrical. The distribution of these globules is not really even, and there's different sizes of these globules, small ones and big ones. And you're still going to get into a category of biopsy. So again, this is where having the right words, the right terminology strictly is not necessary. But being able to kind of see the difference in some of these structures and to be able to see some of the asymmetry is what we do want you to take away from this. So after saying that something's melanocytic, we ask, does it fit a benign pattern or known pattern? These are the benign nevus patterns. And this is another article by Ash Margoob. And he titled it The Beauty and the Beast. And so this is kind of interesting because in a lot of images that we look at, uh, symmetry is beautiful. Um, I saw an article in People Magazine once, you know, like if you have a no-show, you pick up the People Magazine, you flip through it. Um, but the most beautiful people have the most symmetrical faces. It's just incredible. Um, one of the people who is a great singer, Lyle Lovett, I don't know, you're probably too young for that, um, but has like one of the most asymmetrical faces in Hollywood, um, but you know, it, it, he's just perceived very differently. And that really happens in dermatology as well, whether we recognize it consciously or not, unconsciously we see something that is asymmetrical and we kind of look at it a little bit longer. And that's purposeful. We want to look at it longer. But benign nevi, beautiful things, kind of the things that are acceptable to us in terms of leaving on the skin, have asymmetry, but they don't have to have ugh, the same pattern. So this one is completely homogenous. It's called diffuse reticular, meaning that fine reticular pattern, and that reticular pattern takes up the whole lesion. But as we talked about, there can be times that this pattern breaks apart, whether it's around hair follicles or just with age. This breaking apart, though, is happening in a symmetrical way. You can have the reticular pattern just on the outside of the lesion with a decrease in pigment in the center, or conversely, an increase in pigment in the center. You can have a mixture of that reticular network and the globules that I showed you, those cobblestone globules or dots. And we're going to show you some patterns where there's dots at the periphery, but in a symmetrical way. And so we're going to show you some of the evolution of these patterns that happens with age. And that's really important to notice because if you see a pattern that would be construed as benign in a young person, but you're looking at a 60-year-old, we're going to tell you that that's something you want to be aware of. So recognize these symmetrical patterns, and we're going to give you some more information about how to use them in a little while. I'm going to lead into it, and Jenny's going to talk about it also. So when we're young, these dots around the outside are an expansion. So essentially, these melanocytes are growing in nests and spreading outwards through the skin. And they look very dark because they're right at the junction of the epidermis and the dermis. As a pigmented lesion and nevus becomes more stable, you get this diffuse reticular color. So this evolves into this. That is a normal evolution. This is also a normal evolution because we know that we stop making pigmented lesions around 40 or 45. And then people are always reassured that I tell them, you know what, some of your moles are gonna go away, but you're gonna get all these other things. I don't tell them that. Um, but they're, they're always really happy. Ugh, sorry. Um, and this is what happens as a nevus goes away, is that pigment network starts to symmetrically dissolve. 
So what you want to be on the lookout for is if you see this in somebody who's 60, this pattern of dots around the outside is a finding of growth. We do not expect a growth of nevi in people who shouldn't be getting new nevi. So while this is a normal pattern in somebody who is acquiring moles, and I've had people who are 35 and 40 and I saw this, and I said, you know what, like, you're still in the realm of maybe getting new moles. We should either watch this or if you're worried and it's a pretty new lesion and it's in a place like your back where you can't see it, maybe I will biopsy it. So I give people that option. Um, but if it's in somebody who's 60 or 70, I'm gonna biopsy this lesion because it's expanding in its growth. So two steps, is it melanocytic? Meaning does it have pigment network, globules or homogenous? And we are gonna keep sort of saying this over and over and over because part of what we wanna try and do is help train your brain as saying when I look at a lesion, number one, what am I looking for? Pigment network, globules, homogenous. Do I see that? Yes, then it's going into a pigmented lesion category. I need to ask myself, is it a normal mole? If it doesn't have those things, does it fit another pattern? We're gonna tell you what those patterns are as well. Does it look like one of these other things? And those options of, if it does not fit a benign pattern and it was in one of these melanocytic networks, you're probably gonna biopsy it, but you have the option of monitoring it. Now, if you get through this side of the algorithm where you've said, all right, was there pigment network globules or something homogenous? And you said no, but you can't fit it into one of these other known categories, there should be a dotted line here in my brain because you're still gonna biopsy that. You're saying I still can't fit it into a great category and if I can't categorize it, I need to know what it is and you're gonna end up biopsying it. So we thought about calling this course Dermoscopy for the scared, bewildered, and confused, but we worried that it would like decrease attendance. Um, but if you're feeling this way, that is okay. We have gone through a lot. The next step is to go through this two-step algorithm with a lot of pictures and to help you hopefully recognize some of these findings and start to categorize things on your own and to assess the level of threat. Is this something that I'm really worried about or not super worried about? And at the end, hopefully you won't have uh, this look on your face. So here are a couple cases, hopefully to reiterate that in the last few minutes you've learned something. So this is a 67-year-old man. He has a brown macule on his flank, so on his side. Now you might be looking at this picture and say, well, I'm pretty sure this is a subreic keratosis and he's got some other things, but yeah, this really does touch my eye. Let me put my dermatoscope on it. So you put it on there, first question. Is there pigment network globules or homogenous? I wasn't sure if ARS that was in that one. So what do you guys think? Question no, number one. Okay. Yes, I agree with you. There is good pigment network in this lesion. Small, lacy, not real wide compared to the lighter spaces around it. What's the second question? Does it fit a known pattern? So we've now said that it's melanocytic. 
we need to go into the second step, which is, can I prove this is benign? Does it fit into a benign pattern? And the answer is, it looks a lot like this pattern where there's darker pigment in the center with that diffuse reticular pattern around the outside. If you're seeing these little areas here, that's okay, because why? What is that? Right. So while it's not perfectly symmetrical in a strict sense, I always tell people the body's not perfect. Like, you know, this is that Swiss cheese effect, but that's okay. You could argue maybe it looks a little bit by, like this and maybe it's the child of those two patterns. That's okay, they're both benign patterns, it's okay. So this happens a lot in our clinic. Uh, we get a lot of medical students who rotate through derm and then they get worried about every single pigmented lesion that they have. Um, so this actually was a 25-year-old medical student. He got his hair cut because he was starting his clerkships where they leave the classroom and start uh, seeing patients. And his barber noted this lesion on his neck. And this actually, does this happen to you guys? You get patients sent in by barbers? Yeah, I love that. So we put our dermatoscope on the back of his neck, and this is what we see. So what's the first question? Pigment network globules or homogeneous color. What do you think you see here? Yeah, so these are those cobblestone globules, very nice yellow-brown tan color, all sort of fitting together like tiles. Fits a known pattern, fits. I think this one down here pretty nicely. So we're not worried about that. We've just taken our time. We've looked at that lesion. We used our fancy dermatoscope. We've reassured him that he does not have melanoma. This is just another way of thinking about what we're gonna talk about in the next um, little while. This idea of step one, is it melanocytic? Oh gosh, sorry. Number one, is it melanocytic? Does it have pigment network globules or homogeneous color. Second step is, does it fit a benign pattern or does it have signs of melanoma? If it does not fit a pigment network globules or homogeneous blue-gray color, we have to ask, does it fit one of these other known patterns? I'm gonna spend a lot of my time in the pink lecture talking about these other patterns, the vascular patterns. This is something that for our whole clinic, we've printed off this card, and this also is from Ashmar Goob's work. And it's just really nice as I was starting to pull this out and sort of remind myself how to work through these questions. And the cartoons I thought were actually pretty helpful to remind me of what a seborrheic keratosis does look like. So we've included these cartoons um, in our talks to help sort of orient you to this uh, flow. We've included references. Uh, I think that for, if three or $400 for a textbook is a lot of money, and sometimes it really is, um, there are some very nice online resources on dermoscopy, um, some of which we've tried to incorporate into this talk, so I highly recommend those. A couple of wrap-up questions. So which of these is true about dermoscopy? That it is quick and minimally invasive, that it actually makes patients nervous, or that it reduces unnecessary biopsies? So it is 
quick and minimally invasive. Oh, darn it. Brian, can you go back to that slide? So what's true, I think, is it does reduce unnecessary biopsies after training. And so this is a little bit of true but also false because what we have to do is learn how to interpret accurately what we're seeing. And so yes, after the next few hours, this probably will help you after getting back home and sort of doing some of these and writing those little notes to yourself about what I saw and why I thought it was this or that, it will. But know that in the beginning, it's gonna not necessarily feel the most comfortable. If that's not true, that's great. It means we did a great job. But it's also normal to not feel so comfortable when you first start doing this. It's not going to make patients more anxious. If anything, I have patients where the spouse comes in pointing out a lesion on the, the other person. And I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's a seborrheic keratosis. And they give me this hairy eyeball, like, seriously, you just barely glanced at it. How could you possibly know? And then I pull out the dermatoscope and I say, oh, goodness, yes, that absolutely looks just fine. So it actually reassures patients, so that is false. But absolutely, A is true, so it is very quick and minimally invasive. A typical skin check, when we do it, takes about 90 seconds. There are studies showing that the added use of dermoscopy does not make it significantly longer. So this is very um, timely in terms of the efficiency in clinic. So you could argue that A and C are both right. So which dermoscopic method is better for visualizing structures in the dermis versus, say, the epidermis. So dermis being deeper, is it going to be the non-polarized, the polarized, both of them, or neither? Great, yes, so maybe some of you remembered the P to D. So P becomes deeper, non-polarized. You have to touch the surface, so you're really seeing the surface, which is sometimes really useful. Um, I, I like my polarized dermatoscope a lot. Sometimes I haven't charged it, and then when I don't have ink clinic, I'm like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. Um, so which of these demonstrates melanocytic pigment globules is going to be A, B, or C? No music? What? No timer? I can't pull. All right, just yell it out. Which one is pigment globules? All right, that's correct. So what's in C? That's a basal cell. What's different about those globs that you see? Yeah, I hear words. It's great. Um, I love that this woman, what's your name, Judy? Jody. Jody, thank you so much. You got it right. Um, but I'm pretty sure the rest of you did too. So in C, the difference is the quality of the color, the differences in the color, the differences in the size of the globules, that kind of spreading of the pigment all says that this is not that typical cobblestone globule of a dermal nevus. And on the left, what is that? A? That's pigment network. 
nice, nice, fine, lacy, good. So the question for those of you who couldn't hear it was, what about amelanotic melanoma? That's a really fantastic question, leads into the talk that I'm gonna do on pink things because amelanotic melanoma is very often predominantly pink. So we're looking at what are the vascular structures that are worrisome and we're gonna, again, categorize just as we categorized normal nevus patterns and things that are worrisome. We've only shown you normal. Jenny's gonna talk about what's not normal. Amelanotic melanoma is actually often a misnomer. There actually is often some pigment network or something that can tell you that it's a melanocytic lesion, often at the edge. Um, so I think that that's something that I look for, but the vascular structures, we're gonna send a, a spend 60 minutes on that, uh, will definitely help you to recognize those. The other thing with that is you'll look at it and you might say there's no pigment network. So then you put it into that category of, is it in seborrheic keratosis? Does it have those features? Does it have basal cell features? Does, and you're gonna go through that list of known structures of benign lesions, and it's not going to fit those patterns, which is gonna prompt you to go back to that biopsy choice. So question, why would you choose the non-polarized function on a dual scope? What are the advantages? So the non-polarized function is the, a couple of the examples I gave you, the more superficial structures become a lot more evident. Um, so one of the times I think it's most helpful is when you're looking at something and you're trying to decide is this a seborrheic keratosis or is this a melanoma. And so that non-polarized dermatoscope that you have to actually set on the skin is going to show you those superficial structures better. So you're going to see those and it's going to be a lot easier to reassure yourself that you can see those keratin pearls. Um, the other thing it's going to help you with in seeing melanomas is that blue-white veil uh, that, that you, you hear about and I'll show you some examples of in just a moment. The blue-white veil, you'd say, well, wait a minute, I thought that meant deeper changes. What that, some of that white over the kind of blue-gray color is, uh, is a thickening of the stratum corneum. So it gives you this, so it's a still a superficial feature in addition to seeing some perhaps regression structures deeper. So a non-polarized dermatoscope helps you see that feature of melanoma better. Um, so being able to toggle between the two may help you kind of discriminate those more superficial features a little better. Arguably, I don't use a dual dermatoscope. I feel like I get the most out of being able to see a little bit deeper. So I only used a polarized dermatoscope because I feel like if I, um, do any of you have a polarized dermatoscope? Yeah. So it's like sometimes I do just use it as a magnifying glass and I just kind of hold it right above the skin. I'm not putting it in contact. I'm just looking at what's on the surface. But then other times I'm really putting it in contact and get, getting a little bit of pressure down onto those things and getting a, a better appearance. I feel like I can already get a good sense of what's happening on the surface with a, my clinical exam. I need the deeper context. So I only use a polarized dermatoscope. I think whatever you use, you use consistently yeah. and you'll start to recognize these features. So I I have a non-polarized dermatoscope in each of my exam rooms, and I don't usually wear a white coat, so I don't have the polarized dermatoscope in my pocket, so I actually use that a little bit more. But I think what you use over and over and over again, you're gonna become familiar with. 
and the companies are really interested in making this easy for people. So um, I have a polarized dermatoscope. It comes with a little holster that you can just put into a pants rung or in your waistband so you can carry it with you all the time. So relating to taking photographs, you can, uh, the way that we have uh, photographs set up is we have an app. I just use my iPhone. I put it right over the eyepiece. You can get a really good clear picture and we can attach those right to our notes. There are companies that make uh, dermatoscopes that you can kind of plug your iPhone into. It's like a case that you snap on. Um, you pay just a little bit more for that. Some people really like it. Um, in some ways, you don't have to get like your face right down onto your patient because you can see on the big screen uh, the dermatoscopic image, but I've just gotten used to having my dermatoscope and taking pictures that way, uh, and the pictures are good. Um, if you're relatively certain you have a melanoma, do you still do dermoscopy? So my answer is yes. I do dermoscopy on a known melanoma, meaning I walk into the room, I'm like, I already know I'm gonna biopsy that, and I'm five feet away from you. And it's because I wanna reinforce the findings so I can see it in the subtle lesion. So that way I can say, remember that that's what this looks like. Find it when it's a little bit smaller or a little bit earlier. And I look at what I know to be benign moles, again, just for that reinforcement and the compare and contrast. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.